This week's special emo edition of the Listen In Podcast is brought to you by the Listen In Podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes, follow us on Stitcher or SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Listening Podcast. This is episode 26. Jake. You know what I was thinking about on the way over, Sean, is that what would you do if, without telling you or announcing it in any way, I came into this episode and just adopted like this shock jock personality? <laughs> I was like, so this Donald Trump guy, he's wild. You know, I don't know, I'd like to build a wall around, uh, around my man cave at home. <laughs> You know what I mean? And then the other, the other like members of the are like kind of uncomfortable. Like, all right, now let's go down to uh, the Weather Fox for today's weather. I think we need to reinvent our whole show around, around this personality. This shock character. This persona. What would be your your radio? Call yeah, Bernie name? Sanders is great and all, but you know I don't know about giving everything away for free. I you know I, this is America, man. You can I can't even get anything free at free sample day at Costco. And you're, you and you're listening and you're like I don't even really know if that makes sense. I don't know if this guy, like what what is he talking about? What does he mean? I, so I was gonna say, what would you have done if I came in like that? If you did, I I would think, oh, he's doing a bit, he's doing a joke. But if I don't quit all episodes, and it continues. Like, <laughs> you know, Pup came out with a good record, but uh, I don't know about that name. What are you, dogs? What was that about? I don't know what that's supposed to be. You know, you have uh, I, I, this emo stuff too is wild. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it is wild, and we should get into. Yeah. It. So it's episode twenty six is gonna be all about emo. And I think slash pop punk. And we're going to start to talk about what these names really mean and the whole genre itself. We're going to talk about a little bit of history, starting with the first, second, and third waves of emo. We're going to get into the fourth wave that we're in right now and what all that means. We're going to highlight some of the great records that have come out in this genre over the past five to six months. Um, And I think we're going to talk about the perception around that genre and how you can get past that and really enjoy great just rock music yeah. that's being created in this this genre. Well, and I, I know this is something we're going to get into, but that's sort of one of my biggest takeaways is that a lot of emo bands and and pop punk bands and things that fall bands that fall within those genres, um, like you said, they're really just good bands and. I know for me for a long time there was a bit of a taboo around those labels. I didn't I, I was very like sort of hesitant to get into anything that sounded like that. So I hope this will this will sort of turn the tides for some people too. I think it will. And if you're not into emo music and you're stumbling across this podcast, I my best advice, keep an open mind. It's not and I tell this to everybody who I talk to because for the past 5 months, Jake, I think you and I have been huge advocates for this type of music. And the first thing you have to tell people about it is it's not what you think it is. Yeah, that's what you would have had to tell me at first, too. Um, I feel like I have to qualify it with uh, keep an open mind. Like, there's poppy good songs on here that anybody can like. You don't have to like this type of music. And that's the whole problem. I think let's just dive into this now. Let's dive into the preconceived notions about what emo is. Right, and so I think... The, some of the biggest preconceived notions are based around what I think people defined emo as when I was in middle school. 
which is the idea of the long jet black dyed hair hanging in front of one eye. It's sort of overly emotive and sad sack lyrics about, you know, whatever, uh, built with angst and all that stuff. And um, super skinny jeans. Whiny vocals to a fault. Now, whiny vocals are a part of it. But it's not what the stereotype is, and it's certainly not for every band. I wouldn't say that even the bands we'll talk about today, not all of them have whiny vocalists. No, not at all. And I think another misconception, especially with vocals, is it's not screamo either. That's right. not what this is. That's a small subgenre off of emo music that came out like probably mid-2000s. It's not that. Like, Yes, there's some screaming in some of the songs, but it's not constant hitting you over the head with it. I right. think it's pretty tasteful and gives another emotional punch to the songs. And it depends what you're listening to um, because some of the bands we'll talk about in a second certainly aren't always screaming or when they do I think it's quite effective like I do with a lot of rock bands. I've always said that I think screaming in rock is great if it's used as a device to project more emotion or to it's used not just as a a means of, of how you always sing. And then metal bands and stuff like that who always literally only scream. I could never get into that I kind don't of like stuff. That. Yeah, it just I can't was never. Um, <clears throat> I think my sh- shock jock personality it's, screwed my throat it's up. It's catching up to you. Yeah. Uh, he That guy can't come around too often. <laughs> no, he can't. Um, only in small doses. <laughs> but I think that the most interesting that's going on, and this will get into some of the big releases of this year, is that right now in rock music, and we've talked about this on the podcast, it seems that rock to a lot of people, is receding in some way from popular culture or it's less important. I think some of these bands that, that we're going to talk about in some of these albums this year and, and in the recent most recent years um, within the emo and pop punk genres are some of the most interesting and most important we've had. I would released. agree. I would agree. And I think what they're doing with these releases is it is taking some of those negative preconceived notions about the genre and about who listens to it and they're casting those aside And I think one of the negative assumptions that was made about the genre goes back to the people who might have listened to it in middle school or high school. They weren't considered cool people. Uh, They might have dressed differently than you. They might have looked differently than you. And I don't think it's fair to associate a whole genre of music just because you thought someone who might have listened to it was weird or you were, was a marginalized population wherever you ended up going to school. It, it also falls into a similar trap. It's like sort of this idea of genre in general is is inherently flawed, and I think this has happened with a lot of music. So if you look at grunge, this is the classic example I use is grunge. I mean, within grunge, that, that early first wave of that music, you had Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and like Pearl Jam. All four of those bands have different sounds, different songwriting styles, different this and that. They all got lumped together in one scene. And so you start talking about emo bands in any wave or any period. If you look at a band like Hotelier, Modern Baseball, Sorority Noise, um, you know they don't necessarily sound all that similar. There's, there's similar elements, but like any genre, people have the tendency to lump it in with a scene. Just like grunge was flannel like over right. oversized flannels i think emo became you're the kids with the tight jeans and the and the too long hair in the front of your face like that yeah. and that has become the negative sort of pejorative word emo right so do you want to get into 
some of the release releases we've had now, or maybe we go back yeah. and we work through what the waves are leading up to this newest one, then we can dive into some of those. Yes, I think we should, and I, I was doing a little research today, as I know you were. It doesn't seem that the four waves of emo... So the, where this comes from is that if you read reviews about emo releases or pop punk releases lately... Um, a lot of critics will refer to what we're going through now. Bands like Modern Baseball, Hotelier, are part of this fourth wave of emo. And it seems that the general consensus, although it's argued sometimes by people within the, the bands themselves, the first wave sort of starts in the 80s with bands like Rites of Spring and what's it called? Dag Nasty. Um, I mean, that's what I saw. So what is the reason why this particular... Or, or these particular artists were classified as that? Was it the lyrics? Was I, it the themes in them? So I listened to... I haven't listened to Dag Nasty. I listened to the first Rights of... I think maybe the only? Uh, I think it's the first Rights of Spring record from 1985. Um, it's on that list that Rolling Stone put out, the top 40 emo albums of all time, which was controversial. Mm. Um, but this album... Uh, to me, it really has. It, if you, from a modern listener's standpoint, if you're an emo fan now, you're not going to find a lot that resembles emo in there. It really has its roots in hardcore mm -hmm. and just in '80s punk. Mm -hmm. It came out in 1985. Um, I the comparison I would make is that this is emo, in the same way that something like um, the Stooges or the Velvet Underground is punk. And it's like because you always read critics and they write about stuff like. Velvet Underground being proto-punk. And you listen, and it's like songs like Heroin right. and songs like Sunday Morning. You're like, I don't totally get it. Right. But it's the essence that's there. And I think part of it, with Rites of Spring at least, is that their lyrics were, in subject matter, maybe alone, a little more emotive. But a lot of the vocals are aggressive, borderline screaming stuff. Not like you'd think of a screamo, though. It's more like 80s hardcore punk screaming, where it's more guttural and just, you know, from your your stomach. Right. I was doing a little research myself today, and a lot of people, I think in that same vein where people say Velvet Underground was one of the first punk albums, people say Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys was the first emo album. That's hilarious. For the themes on it and the, the melodies and stuff like that. So. That's the negative first wave. <laughs> yeah, That's way Exactly, back. yeah. The Sub-Zero wave. People make all kinds of crazy classifications with emo. If a song has like an emotional tie-in, people are like, was this sneaky an emo record? It's like, no, I don't think like Tunnel of Love by Bruce Springsteen's an emo album. No, I don't. So we, we have that first wave in the in the 80s that came out of that. that Which, by the way, like Rites of Spring, they don't, from what I've read, they don't agree with that at all. And I think that makes sense. Like you're not gonna like if you see what emo has become or what it is or how people perceive it, you're only gonna want to distance yourself from it unless you were openly a part of that scene. Right. And so if you're the pioneers, the proto emos, right. I don't, I don't see any I, reason. I can, I can see why they wouldn't. No. I can see why they wouldn't associate with that. So what what came about in the second wave, Jake? So what I'm seeing is that bands like I think this is where this is like early '90s. You have like Captain Jazz, Mineral, Promise Ring. Um, I think Promise Ring is a big one that even if you aren't familiar with this wave or scene, really, you've probably heard of Promise another, Ring. An, you have, and I think another, the maybe seminal example is Sunny Day Real Estate. Sunny Day Real Estate. Early uh, 90s emo. Especially, yep. Like their album Diary was number one on that Rolling Stone list. Um, I think Jawbreaker falls into this category as well. Uh, and it's really interesting. Their record, um, Dear You on the Rolling Stone top 40 albums in the emo genre list, it was like maybe top five. 
that album gets cr- it's very polarizing critically. On Pitchfork, it is like a two point three. Really? Yeah. People, some people hate this album. So I think that's something that you see a lot in this genre or with this type of music, where certain people and certain publications love it and will praise certain albums, and then other ones don't give it the time of day at all. I think you're still seeing that today, where like the absolute punk dot website of the world, like of course they're going yep. to give these higher reviews and then people like pitchfork not so much because that's not the type of music that they deem cool or the music that they really want to be associated with which isn't fair but i think we're starting to see a breakdown of that of that caste system of music almost (laughs) where emo's emo would be the untouchables yeah absolutely and now they're working their way up still is in some ways i think some publications are afraid to review it positively because of what they'll be perceived as or give it a more positive review yeah. that they'll give it, they'll play it safe and they'll give it somewhere in the seven range right, where exactly. maybe it deserves a high eight or even into the nine. We've talked about this before. Pitchfork seems to have a ceiling. The highest I've ever seen for one of these emo records is uh, Home Like No Places There by The Hotelier, which got an 8.2, yeah. no best new music. Right. That concept actually leads well into the third wave, which is the late 90s into early to mid 2000s. So, Bands I think that are lumped in here generally are Jimmy World, Brand New, Saves the Day. Those are some of the ones I've seen on online. Um, I think this then, American Football, I think is chronologically in this group, but I think considered more influential. Yeah. And then you have bands like um, My Chemical Romance, uh, Fall Out Boy, probably Boys Like Girls, stuff like that. Like Taking those, Back Sunday. Those middle 2000s bands that some people feel co-opted the genre for So I was going to say, this... Is these those bands that came about in the early to mid to later two thousands were when the record industry was like, hey, emo is a viable product. Yep. Let's churn some stuff out with this. I think it's the same thing that happened. You talked about grunge earlier. I think that happened where people kind of took that sound and ran with it. You get and they then monetized you, it. Then you get Stone Temple Pilots. You get Creed. And you get Creed and you get people like that. You have p- people at the end of the nineties. Just all these these number associated band names like Matchbox 20, yeah, Third Eye Blind. That's the ultimate... Um, I, it, it's funny because I think like Matchbox 20 is that alter- alternative, adult alternative sound that's almost like the, the commercial version of grunge. Mm-hmm. I think Third Eye Blind is sort of the commercial version of emo that yeah. is sort of it's like of, of that of that 90s emo right um right that kind of thing because um yeah anyways but, that's interesting but yeah you end up with a- actual record sales from this yeah uh, with especially fallout boys a, a big one i remember when under the cork tree their first album or their first major label release came out and that had Sugar We're Going Down. Like it had Dance Dance on it. That was huge at yeah. the time. And it's a double edged sword for a few reasons. But first of all, like so a band like that is what we talked about with Ian last week about a band like Jet, for example. I think the problem is sometimes we look back at that and this is another reason emo gets reviled, because first of all, if you never listen to emo, you view people who are in those that genre or doing that playing that kind of music as Sort of those guys. It's sort of that outsider view. Less than. Less than. The untouchables. Or you, as a music fan, maybe you gave Emo a shot. You're like, well, I don't see what's so great about it. Because in the mid-2000s, it was like this pop product. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what happens is bands like Fall Out Boy, bands like My Chemical Romance... All-American rejects. Yeah. And I don't I haven't listened to all these bands that much. But they seem to get a bit of a bad rap, Mm -hmm. critically... 
maybe in some cases just because they were a part of that. And it's another point about the genre thing because My Chemical Romance and uh, Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco, none of those bands really sound the way they did then. And that's an example of how a, a record industry, music industry, will lump you into a sound no mm-hmm. matter what mm-hmm. you're trying to do. Yeah, I was I was reading about these waves today and towards the end of the 2000s, people, there was backlash to, to emo. And I think you're right, where a lot of those bands started to not even sound anything like what they're being lumped in as. And they started to just make straight up pop music or they added like synthesizers and stuff. It got away from the rock aspect and turned much more just into this pop music product. Uh, and Which I th- happens with anything. Of musical. course it will. And I think that is where emo is at now where it's it was this huge pop music thing that was a viable product to sell people got sick of it there was major backlash to it it became cool to shit on that genre and not like it Mm -hmm. and now you get bands like modern baseball sorority noise world's a beautiful place hotel year who are making some of the most important and best rock music in the context of that genre now. Well, because they are, those bands used the general premise, sort of the basic framework of the genre, and did it with what is always considered more interesting and what always ends up being more interesting, which is a more DIY, indie sort of start. Um, and, and, and using the music not as a formula, but as taking what are some components here that we can make interesting, and I think, and that's where we get into the fourth wave, which is which yeah. is bands like that. Uh, on here on this Reddit site that I found, it says it's from 08 till now, so it does seem like emo never died. Right. I bet the darkest days for emo were probably like 06 to 08. Yeah, that seems like yeah. it was probably in the sort of the throes of commercialization yep. and not people doing people just run out of interesting things to do with it, and that's what's interesting about this fourth wave is that. In some ways, it's kind of a first wave again, if that makes sense, yeah. because through the f- the first wave, you can almost consider not emo. It's basically still hardcore. The real prime emo stuff is like that second wave, part of the third wave, where you had American uh, football. I almost called them American baseball, <laughs> which I will probably do. <laughs> That's going to be times. the the modern baseball, American football kind of offshoot. Yeah, when they have a a. a, a Super group, yeah. American baseball. It's going to be like the wolf parade of, yeah. of emo. Right. But I think um, then what happens, like with anything like happened to Garage Rock in the early 2000s, like happened to Grunge in the early 90s and to mid-90s, it got commercialized. It got kind of ruined from the pure thing it was. But I think with emo more than anything else, the stigma really lasted. It sticks like just the worst. And it, it, I think that's because of the type of people that, that other people think you have to be if you like emo or yeah. if you listen to it. And I think that's what you and I especially are fighting against now. And this is a great time to tr- talk about some of these newer bands. You and I were basically those people where we, we, we thought, no, that genre is beneath me. I don't, I don't like that type of music. Yeah. And then we started to get into some EPs here and there by like Modern Baseball and our friend Cam who came on the podcast from Sorority Noise. We gave those a listen and we were like, wait a minute, these are actually really good. Well, that was a big thing for me. I remember, because I always follow what Cam did after high school. We were friends in high school, so I, I kept up with what he was doing. And when he released the first Sorority Noise album, Forgettable, I remember listening kind of on repeat one summer and realizing sort of slowly, 
I really like this music. I really like mm-hmm. this. And maybe this whole idea of what emo is 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 a bunch of bullshit. Because uh, this is a great record. And I remember writing to him on Facebook. I was like, hey, I just I want you to know I really like this album and whatever. And um, and it has really helped because now with bands like Modern Baseball and those bands, I feel like no stigma at all about right. getting into stuff like right. that. I, I don't think anyone should. It's silly I ever felt that way. You, sh- you should never feel embarrassed or like there's a stigma around any music that you listen to. And we talked about this in one of our earlier episodes about are guilty pleasures actually a thing? And I think this is a great example of no. They shouldn't Some be. people would say, oh, I listen to, you know, Fallout Boy. It's a guilty pleasure. Fuck, no. No, why Why would you say that? Those are catchy songs. If you like them, you like them. Mm. And that's the thing. When I, when you showed me Sorority Noise and you showed me Modern Baseball, I had that stigma. And I was like, all right, I'll keep an open mind. We'll see what this is all about. And then as I listened, I was reminded how much I did like those bands from the mid-2000s. And I remembered liking some Taking Back Sunday songs. I remembered liking some Fall Out Boy songs. And I was thinking, this new music is a lot like that, except it's just crossed kind of with indie. And this is this is awesome. This is right up my alley. It's super interesting stuff that these bands are doing. Yeah. Um, which I think leads well into the fact that I think, Sean, this fourth wave of emo... In 2016, seems to be cresting. I was gonna say, yeah, it's they're, peaked. They're, well, maybe not peaked, but it it is definitely on the upswing. Yeah, peaked past tense is too early to say, but it's peaking and cresting to go with the wave metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the albums released this year within this genre are pretty powerful, yeah. excellent albums. So we have mentioned Modern Baseball a lot. They came out several with, times with Holy Ghost. We did year. a borderline breakdown podcast. We did. On That's a couple Holy episodes Ghost. ago, so you can check that out for more for more breakdown. We had yeah, we had Holy Ghost. Um, earlier on in the year, we had a new Sorority Noise EP. We had a new World's a Beautiful Place, and I'm No Longer Afraid to Die 7-inch. We had right. um, Tiny Moving Parts, Teen Suicide, which is kind of in that lo-fi emo. You could, And we'll get into this later about how everything just seems to kind of get lumped in with that sound at this point. Uh, Sioux Falls. Uh, and then recently, Jake, this past week, we had two absolute gems. Yep. One was uh, The Dream Is Over by Pup, which is more on that punk side. It's like basically pop punk or just maybe straight up punk. But it's uh, it's, it's very poppy. It's catchy it as all hell. It is. And then I think one of the crown jewels of this entire genre is Goodness by Ho- The Hotel Year that yeah. came out this year. So. If you're not familiar with the Hotel Year, they are a Worcester, Massachusetts-based band. This is their third record. Their second one, Home Like No Place Is There. Hard to say. It, yeah, because you want to say Home Like No Place There Is. Yeah. But that's not the case. No, why would they do that? Came out in 2014, and it got some critical praise, but I want to say it was largely ignored for how great it is. And then with this new one, with Goodness, that came out just this past week, started to get a lot of buzz, a lot of hype leading up to it. And I think it's had some good critical outpouring and fan support as well. Uh, What are your thoughts on Goodness, especially, or the year we've had? Yeah, well, so to to talk about Goodness quickly, I I mean, I think it's one of the best albums of the year. Um, This and Holy Ghost are two of among my favorites. Both fall within this genre. But the interesting thing is, and, and talking about them in the same context as Pup, or even as Modern Baseball, 
that points out the same effect I was talking about before, where in the same way that Nirvana doesn't sound like Pearl Jam, doesn't sound like Soundgarden, that is is apparent here as well. There are similar elements, like uh, maybe lyrical themes here and there, and maybe some of the instrumentation. But to me, Holy Ghost by Modern Baseball sounds like a very different record than Goodness, and both of them sound very different from Pop, The Dream Is Over. So that's just a, a side note. But but Goodness, I think, is a pretty incredible... Um, it's showing growth for this band. And Christian Holden, the lead singer, songwriter, it just this seems to be this very interesting, thoughtful, somewhat radical yes. guy. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, there was a big feature on the hotel year in Stereo Gum. Worth and it, reading. And it, it is worth reading. It's interesting because it gives some context and background for this band. They are all anarchists. So I don't know if they all are. I know that Christian Holden lives in, he lives like in a anarchist commune like yeah. a building compound um, yeah. describing anyone as living in a compound or a commune immediately sounds a little dangerous yeah so i i, I think of uh waco texas yeah that, that whole thing when, he, you, when you throw on the word compound yeah so it seems he has some pretty strong feelings about anarchy and about what government's role is in all of our lives but that's neither here nor there because i don't really think it affects the music i don't too think much, so you no i don't think it influences it almost at all yeah, because what's really shining through on this album is that this guy is someone who's a really talented and interesting songwriter with a lot of interesting musical ideas. So while Home, their their previous album, was this um, one of the best emo albums I've heard from this wave, quote unquote, um, just like the emotive lyrics, it is it does fall under, it's like sad. It's um, emotional. Deals a lot with mental health issues and suicide and, and loss. Yeah. But in an interesting way. Because I feel you say that and people are like, oh, of course it does. But it's really interesting in my opinion. It is. And to me, Home is an album where if you want to think about what emo sounds like, it's almost the prototypical sound of that. It's got yeah. I don't know, like relatively heavy guitars, distorted uh slightly whiny vocals that border into screams sometimes yeah, it deals with all those themes we just talked about a couple songs that are heavy on the screaming but i think it's an example of an album where once you get past that if you have the stigma if you're not looking for that and um once you get past it you can pretty quickly and readily understand how how good the songs the, are the songwriting is so good it, on home it's really great so when you look at this band and they came out with this album Home. And now you're wondering, okay, what's going to happen with goodness? Goodness is almost a, a heel turn on that sound. It's almost like they thought, okay, we went as far as we could go with this more aggressive sound. We're just going to kind of reinvent. Cut bait. And we're going to do something totally different. And they totally did. And I've been heavy on the analogies today, which I, I know they're reductive, but I think this is a, a sort of an apt analogy. To me, for the emo audience, an album like Home, if you're going to compare it to Kendrick Lamar, for example, it's almost like the good kid Mad City. Now what we're getting with goodness is this more experimental, different sound sort of thing, like To Pimp a Butterfly. Um, not that these albums sound anything like Kendrick Lamar, but goodness deals a lot with silence, spoken word stuff, quiet instrumental pieces reverb vocals like i've seen the song piano player compared to rem mm -hmm, a lot which mm -hmm. i can hear because christian holden is singing through 
this reverb heavy sort of effect and it has this echoey sound and the guitars are jangly. Yeah. The distortions lessened on this big time. Yeah. I would you I mean I anything to add? I, I agree with your comparison on of Good Kid and to Pimple Butterfly. To me, and when we talk about which album I like better, it's hard because to me, home feels like it has the better individual moments. Songs like Your Deep Rest or In Framing, those are amazing songs. Introduction to the album. And I will revisit just those songs a lot. Yeah. When you talk about what is the more consistent or, I think, enjoyable experience overall, I think goodness is that way. So it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for very high highs, I think home is the way to go. If you're looking for more consistent overall artistic experience, I think goodness is the way to go. Goodness is definitely sort of the concept album of the two. Um, it has it feels unified by certain lyrical themes. He has a spoken word poem, I guess, or piece. Yeah. That's the first track. And a lot of the the things he says within that, like the you in this light looks new, mm-hmm. um, those there's a, some stuff you hear throughout the album. There are things that tie it together in this really interesting way. Um, and it does feel like a departure where if you were listening to the hotel year for what you're used to on on home, you could probably get here and, and wonder like how this is even really the same band because they're not playing stuff that sounds that similar. No, and you get a couple songs here and there. I think Two Deliverances is a good example for of sure. the closest thing you're going to get to something that was on home where it has more of the distorted guitars on it and it has the closest you get to screaming, I think. But at the same time, it, it like you said, it's it's a departure. It's different. And I think this is a great way to loop in this bigger conversation around the emo genre is nothing sounds the same in it, even from release to release by artists. You can even look at modern baseball. Yeah. They grew up with their sound a little bit, and they grew up with the lyrics a little bit on this album. And I think um, it was in... Stereo gum. No, it was on Pitchfork. It was on. It was on their blog on that they were talking about how emo is starting to grow up a little bit. It's getting past talking about girls and being sad, and it's starting to get into these bigger themes about life and growing as a person and what that all means, which I think is really cool. Yeah, a couple points. Um, so last year was a big year in this genre as well, and and Sorority Noise released um, their second full length album, Joy Departed. And a lot of the press leading up to that coming out was that Cam wrote an open letter about mental illness. And instead of the focus being, woe is me, I'm sad a lot, this and that, you know, mental illness cripples me. It was about, <clears throat> excuse me, dude, that shock jock personality is, <laughs> yeah. is, is coming back to haunt me. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to ever, I might, I might never do him again. <laughs> but, uh, um, but it was about how he found a way to get over his mental illness a little bit and use it as... A means to help others and I think so in that way it's growing up another way is that these are literally people who were kids when they started these bands and they are growing up right the, the guys in modern baseball are around our age right Cam's I, around our age I, think, I feel like we're growing up with them as they come out with new music I think Christian Holden was born in 1992 like yeah. us. I think he's, he's 23, also 24. 23 even though he looks much older than that right and I um yeah so I think that there's a couple ways in which the people are actually growing up and having more mature 
thoughts and that's naturally reflected in the songwriting um and they're finding their own voice because they're you know it's a new era and and i think something that they're also doing is their understanding of the impact that they can have with their music i think with cam that's a big one he always talks at every show about how he struggles with mental illness and if you need help like seek help and talk to somebody about it because it could save your life. He talks also a lot about not glamorizing That's sadness, right. not That's glamorizing right. depression or mental illness because what happens is in emo that becomes A, the cliche of the genre and sort of B, the crutch of it because people who write this music, it becomes, okay, that's what's expected, that's what fans want, mm-hmm. let's write it and glamorize it mm-hmm. and it does become cool to be sad. That's I, think, sort of, I think you saw that with bands like Taking Back Sunday, who would talk about like self harm, right? And, and I don't want to say they glorified it, but I think it it might have compelled some people to continue doing it or not seek help with it because you identify with it. And I think an important part of what's happening now with this wave is that, well, I mean, like the Hotelier, I'm not sure exactly what they're trying to get at with their music lyrically, but 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 if you're Sorority Noise, a band. I think Modern Baseball has done a little bit of this, too. Well, if you look at Modern Baseball, what they're doing at their shows is they've started the help hotline, where if you're feeling unsafe at a show, they have a number that you can call, and it goes right to their tour manager. So that's kind of their their own thing that they're doing, which is really cool. And I was going to say that I think that is an indication of people today trying to release music that, that has this label of emo on it but understand the failings of what that means and understand what's really more important and what about the genre is actually not worth keeping around in for those specific reasons that's why i think this fourth wave has become one of the most important things in just rock music in general on top of the fact that the songwriting's great the melodies are great the lyrics are great this is just some of the best music that's coming out now on top of kind of this almost social responsibility that they feel like they have to do the right thing. Totally agreed. Um, so what do we what do we want to get into next? So I, I think um, I, I kind of want to talk about the 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 genre name more. Do we need a different name for this type of music or should we call it something else? Should we just call this alternative rock or what which... That's that's the problem is that you could make the argument that grunge was just alternative rock or anything, you know what I mean like actually that's what Cam said when he was on the yeah. podcast. He said why don't we just call it alternative rock? It's not you can't package that. You can't sell that. Right. You, you can call it whatever you want. But I think that's the thing is like that's where these names come from ultimately. No band or I mean, I think if you do this, you're in it for the wrong reasons. But I don't think many bands set out and are like, okay, I will be a you know psychedelic band only. Right. I will be a grunge band only. I'm going to be right. an adult alternative band. Right. I think what happens is there are these bands that come out with music and naturally are influenced by contemporaries. And what results is, is a music industry label that gets spread sort of with broad brush strokes across many bands with different voices. I think for people like us who enjoy discussing music and analyzing music, these genres are also fun for us. Because we can have this question, we can have this conversation of, is this a fair genre name? Also, because when you just call things alternative rock, that's not that fun for anyone because that is all-encompassing right now. You could have so many different bands 
in the alternative rock genre. You could have someone like Radiohead, and you could have someone like Modern Baseball, and those are two very, very different sounds. So it just helps us to have a conversation about it. I think we care a lot more about it than the people making the music actually do. For sure. And that, honestly, and like I said, if you, when you're making music, do care way too much about what this is going to be known as, I think that's a little disingenuous. I think most creative types would tell you the same. Most who, who create music themselves would have that similar thought. Yeah. Um, but I do think that we need you know, as a music listening public in general, or just as, you know, critics, people who are in the critical realm, I think need to do some reassessment of what emo means. I think that's what's more important. Yeah. Is, I think guys like Ian Cohen, who writes for Pitchfork, Stephen Hyden, these are some writers and, and you know, musical critics who are starting to understand what this, this new wave of emo music means and understanding mm-hmm. that, no, this really is good music, this really is important right. stuff. And I think for them, and I, I, they're two of my favorite current music writers today because it feels like they get it and i think what they get is that this is just good rock music that's what they like that's what they're going to identify it as and i think if i'm going to use pitchfork here as kind of a scapegoat because it seems like they don't put as much stock into this type of music well, and they as seem, other people they do. They seem unwilling or unable <laughs> to admit that stuff coming out is are really good records. I mean, they gave Hotelier's new record an eight flat. I mean, it's so much better Which than someone... Which feels like such a cop-out because they're acknowledging it's great, yeah, but not enough to really put a best... <clears throat> excuse me. That it's contagious with the, that this shock, shock jock. jock character. It's not enough... To give it a best new music and really stand behind it, which is frustrating. Same thing with the review they just gave Pup. They gave it a 7.8, which seems to be the, first of all, 7.7, 8, in general. Those are their go-to scores for these bands and these records. If you read the description, it was like, Pup's new album is a glorious 30-minute adventure into like <laughs> right. into chant vocals and, and pop punk. You're like, oh, hell yeah. What is yeah. that? Like, you look at, oh, 7.8? <laughs> right. It just doesn't ring true, and it feels like... There's a disconnect with Pitchfork between the higher ups and what they're allowing them to give scores, and we've talked about this. But and then what the critics actually want to give, like yeah. Julian Mapes wrote the, I think it's Mapes wrote the review for I think it was Hotelier. Yeah, and you just got the feeling reading it that she wanted to give it a better score than that. And that is that seems to be the case with every single Ian Cohen review. It feels like he wants to give it more and writes it as if he gave it a higher score, and then Pitchfork's like, we're gonna give it what we deem appropriate for our image our, our politics and the case in point of that is that ian cohen was on the celebration rock podcast with stephen hyden and they were talking about their favorite records of since 2010 uh i think ian cohen said his it was like in his top five maybe was joyce manor's album never hung over again and he said it was like unimpeachable that was his actual word he said the, like this record's like perfect you read the review he wrote it's it, it's a great positive review he gave it a 7.9 so, I mean, like, are these, what's the deal there? I don't understand right. why there's such a disconnect. Right. Because it, does, it, it seems like someone like Pitchfork, a, a, a sort of media organization like that, is becoming sort of the old codger in the group and, and getting no better than sort of a Rolling Stone. I would completely agree. It's getting really, really frustrating. And at this point, I keep reading it, not because they are a, a real leader thought leader in in music criticism it's because i want to like hate read them and just see 
how I disagree well, at this point. And why are they willing to give an album like Car Seat Headrest's new album, which I love, give that a best new music, but not dish one out for Modern Baseball, not dish one out for Hotelier? I mean, if you look at the AV Club, if you look at um, uh, Stereo Gum, maybe, some of these albums are getting really positive reviews. Yeah. Like, like the new Hotelier got a straight up A from uh, AV Club. Modern Baseball got an A minus. Those are high scores. Yeah. AV Club's not the most generous either. No, they're not. Like, they gave. A moon-shaped pool, a B or B plus. Did they I really? Think. Yeah. So no, they're not always the most generous. To me, it feels like with that car seat headrest rating, it was more so. This is acceptable for us to give this rating because every other critic is gonna like this. That album has its roots in classic rock. It's it just exactly normal, my point. Cl- normal rock sounds. And in and in bedroom pop and in. Like one man singer songwriter indie, up. Yeah. which is right in their wheelhouse, they're so comfortable giving that a score. Right, it seems. Whereas if you give the new pop album a safe seven point eight, you give Holy Ghost a safe seven point seven. Even last year, Sorority Noise, they gave him a seven point three. Right, like those are safe scores. Right, it's safe in the way that no one will question that. And it's almost like people who follow certain genres and read about them via Pitchfork have to understand what the norm you is. Do. You have to understand how to gauge it. Because yep. as a fan of this emo scene, I'm realizing like if you get a 7-8 from Pitchfork, like that probably means it should be a best new music. Right. And I think what this does is it doesn't allow the genre to grow as much. Because like them or not, Pitchfork are still very influential in how they get people to listen to certain artists. And I think what happens is maybe with an older audience or an audience who doesn't necessarily identify as a rock fan, not putting that best new music tag on there stunts the growth of this particular genre. And that leads me to this question is, do you think that you kind of have to be a younger audience to enjoy this type of music just because the lyrics are so emotive and Mm. they're such of a time and place in your life? Or do you think older audiences can enjoy this as well? I think it depends what you're talking about when you say older. I mean, if we were just talking about Stephen Hyden and Ian Cohen, who aren't old, they're in their mid to late 30s, so they're about a generation removed from where we're at. They're loving these albums. Mm. Um, And I think that lyrical themes probably always permeate through your life more than you'd think. Um, But I think that it, it also depends. So if you're listening to an album like Goodness... That's not doesn't seem tied to teen angst. No. That doesn't seem tied something like um, you're gonna miss it all by modern baseball. Even though that's tied into youthfulness and sort of the juvenile and sort of like the the sort of neuroses and and those things involved in being in college and being a early twenties teenager type. Um, I still think there's interesting lyrical moments in there. And I think you can relate to that still because you probably experienced it. Just because it's ten years later now doesn't mean that you don't remember how you felt then. No, and it's like I talked about, I think I said this exactly on another podcast, I really enjoyed Sunkill Moon's album, Benji. Right. Which is about Mark Kozlik being a grumpy old asshole, (laughs) being just an old man and like (laughs) having his knee act up at a Ben Gibbard concert or Postal Service and talking about like like, uh, blue crab cakes and stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean? And just telling these yarns about growing up and going to see The Song Remains the Same in theaters. Right. In the 70s, I just think age is a thing where if you're making that the reason you can't listen, you're, you're looking at it for the wrong reasons. I think that kind of stuff is it can transcend age. I would agree. Um, 
but I think that people do tend to be more dismissive of, of the young and music that's too tied in with, with youth and that kind of stuff. So let's say you're someone who wants to get into this type of music, this type of yeah. genre. You're not ready to completely dive into the straight-up hotel year modern baseball stuff. What is a good gateway drug that can get you into that? Do you have a good first answer? Well, for me personally, one of the easy ones that I look to is Japan Droids. Oh, okay, got you. Who I think have a lot in common with a band like Pup. Same with Beach Slang, who we talked about last week. I think Beach Slang, Japan Droids, and Pup have more in common together, the three of them, than any of those other quote-unquote emo bands we were just talking about. And it's interesting because a band like Japan Droids was embraced with open arms by by Pitchfork and by some of these other critics. Yeah. And they seem to have a lot tied in with, with punk. Maybe that's the distinction. Maybe you just have to be a pop-punk band or just punk or just consider yourself this sort of really aggressive rock band because bands like Cloud Nothings have been embraced as well by, right. by those that sort of guard of critics. Um, and I think that that, those, that sound that's going on, and again, like Japan Droids doesn't necessarily sound just like Cloud Nothings, but those kinds of bands and those scenes are going on sort of at the same time in parallel with the emo and pop punk They are. Sound. I think there's a lot of overlap There is a lot of overlap, them. yeah. Both of them are... They have lyrics where they're wearing their heart on their sleeve. I mean, Japan Droids and Beach Slang do that more so than any emo band. Yeah. Um, you Beach have, Slang. Yeah, you have heavy guitars. You have shout-along shout along choruses. Uh, you even have some screaming. Like, if you look at Cloud Nothings, that was one of the first bands that I listened to that allowed me to say, oh, screaming can actually really be done tastefully. And it can, in, it can be really aggressive, but it can also be awesome. Yeah, that um, what was that? Is it No Future, No Past? Yeah. Where he's screaming like "Give Up," yeah, that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and that it was a similar effect for me because that came out in 2012, I think, which is when I was a um, sophomore in college. I think I was also getting into bands like The Men then, right? And um, and I'm trying to remember others, but there were similar. It was that similar thing with The Men where I was like, I'm a little intimidated by this. Right. It's a little aggressive. Right. And if you remember, the men have actually changed a lot. They have. Their first record was was like noise. It was like noise yeah. almost. It was a lot of screaming and just like smashing and and noise. Then with that album, Open Your Heart, they moved into some more poppy, even embraced some sort of classic rock sound. Definitely. Um, but bands like that are are a really good gateway drug, I think, to getting into this sound. If your if your palate is more attuned to a classic rock or yes. indie rock, which for us. It always was. Yeah. We grew up listening to the Beatles, the Stones, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. We got into punk in that we listened to the Ramones, the Clash, the Sex Pistols. Yeah. That was our background. And so for bands like Japan Droids and and Waves, Cloud Nothings, Titus Andronicus. Yeah. Titus is an interesting one. Those are more in line with what we were used to rather than the other emo bands we just mentioned. So if you're coming from that background like we were, I think those are good ones to start with. I think that if you want to move into the bands within the genre, within the scene, mm -hmm. I think the f if you're going to ask me which is the one I should... If I think I like pop punk. I think I might like emo. I want to give it a listen. I think modern baseball is a great one to start with. I agree. With. They're, they're so catchy. Yeah. And I think if you have a stigma about the the whininess or the screaming i think they have it the least 
of anyone. I mean, I guess you could argue some of Bren's songs have a little of that nasally. It's definitely nasal. There's it's, no doubt yeah. about that. It's not like whiny though. It I, de- I think say. it depends who's listening because I think you can grow um, accustomed to it in the same. Oh, we've where, gotten desensitized to the whole sound, so that's it's, what I'm saying. It's hard for us to now say. Is you do become accustomed to it and you do become desensitized. Wait, okay, but here's a great example. We were talking to my little sister. She's 16 years Big old. Big friend of the pod. Huge friend of the pod. Big shout to Caitlin. Uh, she just turned 16. I got her into modern baseball. I, basically what happened was I would pick her up from, from practice, and I'd be playing modern baseball in my car. And she was just saying, who is this? I really like this. And I said, it's modern baseball. You should check him out. She started listening on Spotify. got really into them. Now, I asked a week ago, I played in framing by the hotel year and I played your deep rest and I go Caitlin how does this sound to you and she's like yeah it's pretty good I'm like it's not too much it's not like too aggressive it's not too much screaming or anything like that she goes no like it's pretty normal like it's catchy so even for my 16 year old sister who has been who has grown up on Taylor Swift and pop music she's starting to get into this stuff and even has an open mind in terms of these sounds which is so exciting to me first of all because I, like today, I was doing some preliminary research for this about the waves of emo and and all that stuff. There's nothing I love more than a new realm of music to get into. And at her age, she has so much still to explore. Oh, I know. She has so much that she can still, if she wants to listen to a lot of music, there's still borderline infinite amounts. And, and I was getting excited today with emo because I was like, there's these waves. I can study it. I think we're the same way where we both want to have it defined and like we want to understand mm. why... A jawbreaker led to this. We enjoy the history of it. Yeah, where Rites of Spring comes in and yep. the fact that they don't consider themselves emo, but blah, blah, blah. Yep. And uh, But that's a great point. And I think that what is most interesting about that is that there is this um, natural progression in music. So you said your sister started with Taylor Swift. I mean, I think a lot of little kids or you know preteens or whatever, they would start with more poppy music. But through time, you find that the music that kind of scared you or intimidated you or you heard stuff with screaming or you heard things with swears and it seems intimidating the more you listen to it the more you can realize why there's merit there yep and it's actually as a young person i remember being as a teenager that's a big experience because understanding that there's value there it's not just that music like your parents wouldn't like or right it's actually really worthwhile stuff right that's a big experience yeah like us I always think of Death Grips. Because even now, I'm still kind of scared by Death Grips. Of course. Like, if you played that for 16-year-old Jake and Sean, we'd be really afraid. We would be we'd be saying, oh, this is not something we'd ever want to listen to. Well, yeah, 16-year-old Jake could barely get into In Rainbows by Radiohead, yeah. which is now seems so accessible. Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah, really interesting to think about that progression. And I think with emo, like, if you start with a modern baseball, maybe a sorority noise, forgettable I, I, would I think, be good. I think if you start with you're going to miss it all or yeah. forgettable, yeah. you're in a good spot There's if you a little, start with those. A little bit of screaming in, um, what is it, black... Uh, blonde hair, black Blonde hair, lungs. black lungs, yep. yeah. Um, so I think once you've done that, then you can probably get into the hotel year. Then you can probably get into World's a Beautiful Place, and I'm no longer afraid to die. And that's interesting because the World's a Beautiful Place gets lumped in with this emo genre. They sound completely different. Yeah, I've, completely different. I've compared them to almost a, a modern day new kind of prog band. Right. We saw them live, and I think I might have said this on the episode after, but their music's 
pretty complex. You got it's nine sad. or so members up there, an army of guitars. Yeah. It's like Trans Siberian Orchestra <laughs> on the stage, and it's in, and it's so intricately composed. But the interesting thing is, I've seen bands like Coheed and Cambria lumped into um, emo. So there's this certain area where, or even Pine Grove, yeah, which is a completely it's like other alt, angle. It's like alt country almost. Yeah, and then and that's the interesting thing about emo is that there's a there's several different ways you can think about it. But it seems the two major camps, at least, are there's the emo that's rooted in hardcore with aggression and with sort of the straight-ahead, beat-you-over-the-head punk music. Then there's the emo that's rooted in more complex song structures. I think that's where, like, bands, and I haven't listened to them much, but a, a cap and jazz, um, a American football, yeah. bands that have sort of more intricate, yeah. uh, maybe some weird time signatures, some more involved guitar lines. Yeah. Um, Algernon Catawaliter yeah, did some stuff that, like this. Yeah, that more math rock yeah, sound. There's yeah, there's an interesting... So there's a there's some mixes because you look at a band like Sorority Noise, they're basically a pop punk band right. that gets lumped into the emo scene. I'd say the same of modern baseball. Right. Um, I'm not sure what to think of the hotel year, but if you look at uh, yeah. the world's a beautiful place, there were prog metal meets emo. That's right. You know what I mean? Because it's like this this very involved right. orchestral rock sound. So there's webs of these bands out there right now, and what we are going to do is we're going to put together a fourth wave emo introductory playlist so if you haven't gotten into this genre yet you want to go ahead and just search on spotify just just search for listen in podcast all of our playlists are going to show up we're starting to get a nice little collection right now instead of doing a different pl playlist like switching out songs on the same playlist yeah i'm just saving all of them makes so way more sense it does i don't know why we, we well first that. of all we didn't flesh out our playlist no. idea at i'm all. actually really excited about this so i was working on it today you have a folder or like yeah i have a folder of all great. the playlists all you like need i to said do, last time sean's the iron chef of playlists that's right all you need to do is search listen in podcast on spotify you're gonna it what's gonna come up is our fourth wave emo introductory playlist even if you're already into it check it out you're going to get our best album closers of all time playlist. You're going to get our best rock songs of the 2000s playlist. And there's going to be more. I'm going to go back and I'm going to make the best album openers playlist too. And we're going to get a nice little collection there. Excellent. And before, because it feels like we're closing out soon. But before we do, there were a couple points I wanted to make. One is, it's something we've been kind of getting at. But basically, if you're a rock fan... I'd encourage you to get into some of these albums. Listen to Goodness by The Hotelier. Listen to Joy Departed by Sorority Noise. Listen to Holy Ghost by Modern Baseball and The Dream Is Over by Pop. Um, I think this is really, when we look back historically, some of the stuff we're going to think is the most important and interesting about rock. Mm -hmm. And if you have something to add, go ahead, because I have another point. We're, we're at an exciting point in rock music right now, despite what a lot of people will say. You just need to know where to look for this music, and this is where to look, in these genres, in the pop-punk genre in the emo genre this is where the best rock music is happening and i really really encourage you to check it out don't have any stigma about it just go for it yeah try going in head first because yep. um you know if you're really into music i think there's a lot to be found here the other point i wanted to make is sort of a clarification from last episode and i should have said this earlier but i forgot it's last episode we were talking with ian about the 2000s in rock music and I made the point that critically, it seems that the years between 1997 and 2000, so basically 97, 98, 99, are critically ignored. Um, and I was talking with Kevin Kelly, big friend of the big pod. Big friend. Um, shout out to Kevin. And he pointed out, he was like, Jake, that's pretty much because a lot of the most seminal emo albums came out in those years. And I was looking at 
the Rolling Stone list, for example, and one that Kevin talked to me about was um, Clarity by Jimmy Eat World. It came out in 1999. Also, the first American football album mm-hmm. came out in 1999. First and only. First and only. You also have um, albums like Braid's Frame and Canvas from 1998. I'm just looking through the list right now. Jimmy Eat World, like I said. Um, you got Mineral, The Power of Failing from 1997. At the Drive-In, In Casino Out from 1998. Um, the Get Up Kids, Four Minute Mile from 97. Uh, and then it, the list goes on, and so I'm looking through this list, and I would wager, I'd be willing to bet that that year, those that sort of set of years, um, is is uh, factored in really heavily on the, the Rolling Stone Top 40. I think that's what was going on during those years, and it goes back to what we were saying about emo being critically ignored. Nailed it. Absolutely. So um, in, in the history of rock music, of course you're going to think those were down years, when in reality, no, like cool shit was happening. Yeah, because an album like uh, Clarity, which I listened to for the first time today by Jimmy Eat World, um, it's a a band, and and that album where it was initially sort of shit on critically, yeah. it didn't do well. It also flopped commercially. Yeah. But listening to it today, it's really it's good stuff. Yeah. It, it, and I can see why it was influential for so many bands, and why a lot of bands through the later waves of emo cited it as an influence. Um, so just an interesting clarification, and I I didn't want to give the impression that nothing interesting happened in those three years. I did mean that critically. It, it seems there's a drop-off. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. Good clarification there. Uh, yeah, just check out that playlist on Spotify. I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the emo talk. Uh, Give us a follow yeah. on um, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Uh, search the Listening Podcast. We should come up. Same on iTunes. Give us a subscription if you wouldn't mind, please. Also, reach out to us on Twitter. We had a fan. Big shout to Ryan. Big shout to Ryan. Big friend of the pod. That's right. Yeah. yeah th- actually, thank you, Ryan, for if you're still listening, waiting till the end for your shout out because you're like the first non friend of ours to really reach out. That's it. Yeah. Means a lot. Yeah. So we had a good talk about hotel year. He told us he went to the show and really enjoyed it. Jake and I are gonna go actually. So yeah, we're, we'll we'll mix it up on Twitter with yeah. you. It's a, it's a it's a proud moment that we have yeah. our first friend of the pod who wasn't kind Big of friend forced. of the pod. Big friend of the pod, Ryan. Thanks, That's Ryan, right. for the shout out. Cool. Enjoyed our conversation. Uh, so yeah, reach out to us on Twitter. We'll talk. But until next week, thanks everyone. discussion though i'm just concerned that people will go to the show and they won't be comfortable so he needs to provide blankets and pillows for them when they fall asleep <laughs> yeah i you're right I, so t- basically what this is it's a it's a group napping experience when you go to a james blake show right it's a g- collective napping yeah. Thing. So basically what you're saying is you don't dislike James Blake in any way. You are legitimately and genuinely concerned for the well-being of his concert goers and hoping that they can experience the show in all its sleepy glory the correct way. Look, I just want people to be comfortable. I know from experience that standing at shows or trying to find a seat somewhere is not easy. It can be hard to, to be comfortable in those hard plastic chairs 
if you're in an arena or standing or something. So I just want to make sure maybe he brings cots. Actually, no, that's for like the VIP people. They get cots. Yeah. Well, I think the VIP would get like a queen or full. That's true. People who are just in the crowd, like in the cheap seats, they get maybe a little mat, a little yeah. yoga mat or something. Do you think you no blankets or pillows for them? Do you think any people wake up and like the people who are sweeping are going by, and it's the same feeling where you are on a road trip and you wake up, you're like, oh, we're here, and the concert's been long over, and like this, some dudes, some people. They sleep a little too long. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. Some some people miss work the next day. They just sleep through the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, it could happen. But James Blake, it's be, just sleepy time. It's like drinking sleepy time tea. To be honest with you, I um, would love if any venue provided beds. If I was provided, uh, <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna rescind that because some <laughs> shit would go down on those beds. Yeah. Like a lot of stuff. I actually probably wouldn't touch those beds. I was I was gonna say if any venues would just provide. Small comforts here and there. Like Vittles. <laughs> Maybe I just want... Uh, I don't know. I just want to be comfortable at all times. I don't personally see what's so wrong with sitting down at a show. I know some people don't would not agree yeah. with me. I don't mind having a seat. I don't know if that's a sign of just me being kind of an old person at, at heart. I think it does mean that. You're like a 45-year-old man. Listen, all I want is to, like you said, be comfortable at the venue and enjoy some of my favorite bands without moving or anything. I just want to sit down. If I want to take a quick cat nap, that should be allowed. So be it. Yeah. So be it. Um, we uh, didn't talk in the NBA this time, but hell of a series. Yeah. With the Warriors and the History and the being made right in front of our eyes. Let's hope they can finish it off and beat LeBron. Big bad LeBron. I... <laughs> Big bad Braun. I, I really hope they they do. I hope the they, Warriors beat, him. I hope they beat him and I hope they fucking sweep them. I was gonna say five just because that's funny, but four is even. Yeah, if they just swept their ass mm-hmm. and people are like, "Ooh, this time with Kyrie and, and Love, yeah. who knows?" Yeah, I think no. they're gonna come up small in the finals. I don't do think you? they have what it takes. They're not. I, these guys aren't winners. Well, I don't disagree with that. I just well, how many years in a row has LeBron been to the Six. finals? And he's only won two, right? That's correct. But that doesn't even include the other finals. He's been to seven total. This he's been to be six seven. in a row. Yeah. That's the, com- that's completely insane. It's hard to wrap your mind around. The last team that stopped LeBron from going to the finals was the 2010 Celtics. Celtics. Rajon Rondo going off. That's right. Yeah. That that's was right. uh, before Rondo was into some messy, probably homophobic stuff. Yeah, he's kind of an asshole, huh? It always seemed that he was. Yes, I guess. I just liked him because he so, could put some English on his laps. The backstory of that homophobia from Rondo is when Doc Rivers was the coach of the Celtics, he got into a bit of a disagreement during a game with whoever that ref is. I forget what his name is. And, oh, yeah, I forget. Too. And I guess Doc Rivers knew that he was gay. And I think shared it with the team, probably, or probably said some shit himself. Guys, about with it. a scratchy voice. Yeah. Um, so I think that's how Rondo found out, and then that just carried over to this situation where he called him the f word, and it just went from there. Unbelievable. So Rondo just kind of insensitive and a jerk. Really quick point, uh, and I guess I know we have to get into it, but Doc Rivers, 
Like, does he put on that voice, or is he just is he always scratchy voiced from like the first whisk, the first t- from the tip? I think because all game, whenever they do like one of those sideline things, he's like, guys, we're gonna get out there. I can't do it, but his voice is so scratchy I the whole game. Th- I think his voice is just always like that, because if you recall, he had to have surgery on his throat. I on think his larynx because he from overuse he started to get like a like a beginnings of a tumor or a cyst or something. The dream would have been over for him. That's right. That's a great tie-in. I think we jump in. Okay. Three, two, one. <laughs> 